is an eight iron and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Take that shank. off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome PGA Tour winner, played in over 500 PGA Tour events on the big tour, golf commentator, uh, Mark Live. Mark, thanks so much for uh, being on the Sub-70 podcast today. been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. There's a lot going on in this world of golf right now. It's uh, <laughs> a paradigm shift in uh, the way we're playing the game these days and, and the way that players are being compensated. So let's get into it, Jason. I think the, yeah, absolutely right. And I think the first thing, though, and, and you probably uh, knew this legend quite well, the passing of Mr. Weisskopf. Um, yes. I would consider him an icon, uh, not only from his playing ability, his talents, but also what he did from a design standpoint, uh, which he may be remembered 100 years from now for those golf courses as much as his golf. So, you know, how well did you know Mr. Weisskopf and, and what was sort of, oh, your take on knowing him and his you know, his work both on the golf course side as a player and on the golf course side as a designer? Well, he was a real serious person to me, you know, and uh, he was a seriously good golfer. I mean, I followed him before playing a golf on the PGA Tour. I used to call, follow him in the Kaiser International Open, uh, followed his progress. My buddy Johnny Miller was competing against him a lot in those days. And uh, Johnny and I lived in the same town in Napa, California. And But Weisskopf was, uh, I wouldn't say he's quite an icon. He's iconic. You know, he's a tall guy. Uh, not many tall guys back in the game um, in the 60s and the 70s when Tom pretty much dominated, uh, winning 16 times. And then, of course, the uh, the British Open that one year. Uh Look, I I, uh, I respect the guy, and, and when you're having a conversation with him, and I had many, uh, you know, just in the locker rooms and things, I mean, he's the guy that led the conversation, and there wasn't ever anything that, that he said that people didn't take credence in, you know? So he was one of those guys, and, and as an announcer as well, if Tom uh, yeah. Weisskopf said it, you know it's pretty good, true, pretty pretty much true. Wasn't he great at that? I remember, I mean, he had such insights, you know, and he was, he, I just thought he was a very, well, aside, I was supposed to have him on the podcast, and then he got sick, right? And then yeah. I would have loved to have right. a conversation. I think he was such an interesting, complex human who almost found sort of what redemption later in life and seemed to sort of, you know, what, finally get it or something like that by his own admission, you know? But he's of such a, there's so many layers to him, which I thought it just made him fascinating. Well, let's face it. Golf exposes big time any little weakness that you may have. And Tom was, um, I don't want to say he was a hothead, but he was very focused on what he was doing. And sometimes he let the inner demons, you know, take over. And I look at the, that same kind of person in the mirror every day. You know, I mean, Tom would say that he was an underachiever. Um, and because he had way much talent, it's kind of like, you know, Greg Norman, people think he may be an underachiever. I think he underachieved I'm, as great as he was, you know, Greg Norman only went in two majors. It's kind of a crime. Uh, but Tom Weisskopf is a hall of fame guy, you know? So, uh, probably doesn't have the credentials to make the hall of fame, um, I could be wrong. Is he in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think 16 and I, one probably does it, doesn't it? Boy, that's um, you know how hard I'm it is sure. to win once, let alone 16 times. Yeah, Whew. yeah. Well, Venturi was right on the cusp too, with 14 wins, and they're not going to give it to him. And then, of course, the U.S. Open. But now, getting back to Tom, I mean, he he was very temperamental on the golf course. But name me a guy that you know the game doesn't uh, take a couple of layers off of the onion. You know, the the game just beat you up. And I think it meant so much to him that, that he acted a little bit tough, you know, and the press didn't really like his interviews because he was frank. He was basically saying, hey, you guys don't want to hear what I had to say. And he never did and never will. So, you know, it's Jack and it's, and it's you know, the king and it's all this and I'm just another guy. 
so, you know, the, the press really was not on Tom Weisskopf's side, but the, the guys in the locker room sure liked him. Um, and it's kind of like Vijay Singh, you know, the guy in the locker room that, that everyone loves is Vijay Singh, but the press doesn't like him at all. And so they, they called him Tom terrific sometimes, and they called him terrible Tom on the other, the other times. But to me, Tom was, um, you know, a guy that you'd want to listen to. And, and there is not one golf course that I've played that, that has his name on it that, that I didn't absolutely love. And that's a huge statement because, you know, golfers like me are pretty critical of every little, you know, bunker arrangement and green, you know, uh, complex. And, you know, he's uh, he's pretty much a savant at designing golf courses. And, um, you know, they will live along with his, you know, reputation as being a great player, a, a really good announcer and a master golf course builder. I got to watch him hit range balls at a champions tour event in like 93 or 94 when I was in high school and it just looked and sounded different. And he had a presence, right? Like when he walked out of that driving range, you're like, holy shit, that's Tom Weisskopf. And just hitting these towering, like four irons and five irons. You know, he's a big guy with these, you know, big shoulders. And he just looked like he was twice everybody's size out there at that point in time. Cause you know, that era is a lot of smaller guys. It was just like a stripe show out in his 50s of how good he still hit these towering iron shots. It just sounded different, looked different. I was like, wow, that is just talent. You could just, it just There, there are talent. only a handful of guys that have that sound when it's, when it's coming off the blade. And, um, you know, you, can, you know who those guys are. Um, and and it's, it was quite astounding. When he walked onto the practice tee, it's like clear the room. You know, um, that's just the way Tom was. I mean, he, he had an air about him that was, you know, not superstarish, but it was, uh oh, here, here comes the boss, you know? Um, and when, when I started the tour, I mean, he was very intimidating, um, because he, you know, he was the man. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like playing with Jack. You know, you could feel Jack with his piercing eyes just going right through your body as he's watching to hit a five-footer. You know, uh, Tom Weisskopf had presence. And uh, not many people have that, you know. Not many people have that, but he definitely had it. Isn't that weird as a high school kid? I could sense that of just him strolling onto the range. It just looked different. I'm telling you. It, it just had a yeah. different, like magnitude to it i can't put my words on it but he had it just had magnitude yeah and you know uh other superstar like gary player he didn't really bring that on you know um i look at other guys maybe tom watson didn't carry that fear factor uh you know nick price never carried the fear factor um maybe it's because nick price was such a good guy uh, but you know, Weisskopf, man, you're playing with him. I got paired with he and Tom Watson one time and I'm sitting there on the tee. It was at San Diego and I'm sitting there on the tee waiting for these two guys to come up. And I said, what in the hell, how, how am I going to even compete with these guys? You know, but you know, um, uh, I beat them both that day. <laughs> well, you're a professional, right? You're out there for a reason. You were under, uh, exactly. you were under way there. That day, I beat him, you know, and I'm sitting there on the 18th tee. It's a, it's a par five, and I said, I cannot believe this is even happening. I'm beating both of these guys. So, anyway, that was my day in the sun. Um, you know, if I if I had one day that I remember, it was it was that that day because from the first tee to the 18th tee, it was a total uh, total switch off. But you know. Uh, I'm sure they weren't uh, looking forward to showing me what they had. (laughs) Well, and and, and I'm guessing as a touring professional, like you want that grouping, right? And that's why you work hard. That's why you do it. Like, do you want all that group? Because I'm sure you had a large group following you guys. Like you want to show off a little bit. Like that's, that's why you do what you do. Yeah. And you know, um, when in, in the late seventies, when I started the tour in the early eighties, man, you know, these crowds are, this is something, this is a new element. Cause you know, when you're playing in college and you're playing in amateur tournaments, the crowds just really aren't there. And so I, I went to this guy who told me, he says, Hey dude, if there's nobody watching you, then you ain't doing anything. Mm-hmm. He says, so just get it this way. Just, just look at it this way. 
the people are following you because it means something. If they're not following you, it doesn't mean squat. So that's what, you know, guys like Tom Watson dealt with all the time. And um, I remember having the lead at uh, Augusta one year all the way to, to Sunday. And that was a week that was just crazy, crazy, crazy. And I ended up finishing sixth in the event, five back. And the first guy I saw when I, when I uh, went over to Hilton Head, which is the week after, was Tom Watson. And I basically bowed in front of him. I said, I cannot believe the crap that you put up with every week. Because what I did last week is just a, just a fingernail of what you've been doing. He says, yep, Mark, it ain't easy, is it? <laughs> I said, no, it sure as heck isn't. But <clears throat> that's why, you know, you just kind of like look at guys that play with Tiger. I remember when Sam Burns played with him. The kids these days are not intimidated with anybody, you know, right. Sam Burns went out and took Ty, uh, Tiger to the to the shed that day. I mean, he he beat Tiger by a couple of shots, and Sam Burns wasn't even on the PGA Tour. Uh, he had, was just right out. I guess uh, LSU is where he went to school, and uh, he had had a good week over in in Tampa, and he got into the uh, Honda Classic, and he's paired with Tiger on Saturday. And he walks up to Tiger and says, Tiger, I, I hope, you know, you don't get intimidated by the crowd that I brought out here. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I could have no more said that to the man on the moon than somebody like Nicholas or Palmer or Watson or, or even Greg Norman, who he and I basically came up at the same time. He had that kind of presence about him, too, and that sound coming off of the plate. This is just my interpretation. Let me know if I'm right or wrong. But it seems like, just like what you said, the young players didn't have, don't have that intimidation factor. Where in your generation, no. you sort of you learned how to be a pro, right? You try to keep your card at first, then you start getting in the hunt, and then you learn from the old guys. And there's sort of a pecking order, and you kind of figure it out. Uh, and, you, and you hit your prime in your 30s. These guys now are like 22 and ready to win. What, what do you, if, if I'm correct in that analysis, what what changed? I think some guys that were just basically barn burners out of the box, um, you know, Hal Sutton was a guy that came right out and just blitzed yeah. it. You know, I think Crenshaw won maybe his second tournament. And so then you see a couple of guys just kind of coming out and you say, ah, why not me? Why not me? And then, you, you know, Charlie Howell, he came out there and Justin Leonard, he came out there and they just, they, they were competitive right off the bat. And so I think people just started figuring it out. Hey, you know, this, this isn't the sixties. This isn't the seventies anymore. This isn't even in the eighties, you know, uh, where there was a little bit of humiliation going on with the rookies. I mean, I remember going into Sundays just scared to death, you know, how much money I was going to either make or spend that day. Uh, and then you get over that and you become a, a crusty hardened journeyman and, you know, you're playing for keeps and you're playing with a little bit of, you know, a chip on your shoulder. Whereas before you'd come out and in college, nobody knew who the heck you were unless you were Curtis Strange, you know, uh, not many of those guys around. Um, and, and so you felt like you had to kind of pay your dues, Jason. Yeah. Yep. And then I think as time went on and you saw the Suttons and you saw the Crenshaws, and you saw these guys coming out and winning early. You're saying, hmm, this ain't the old tour. You know, this is like, get ready and roast it, you know, and now the guys that are coming out, the, the, you know, Scotty Scheffler guys coming out, this Tom kid that won the, uh, uh the Greensboro tournament, the Wyndham. I yep. mean, that's what you're facing these days. Guys that say, Hey, bring it on sucker. I'm, I'm ready for you. So they've been preparing. Well, let's get into the PGA tour live you know, shit show, for lack of a better word. And, and, I, and I listened to a podcast, and I thought you were very fair before, just to kind of, when I was doing my outline here, that you know you want what's best as a former player. You want what's best Correct. for the player. And you're not on yeah. one side or the other. And like a good attorney, you're arguing both sides of the coin as best as I could hear from your previous comments. So, you know, and it seems like this is changing every week, uh, you know, uh, as it keeps moving down yeah. the line. You know, where where are you at with it at this point in time? You know, the pluses, the minuses, and just, you know, being out there for as long as you have been, you know the players as a commentator. What's Just give me your, from a thought, we'll start with a thousand feet in the air. What's your sort of take of what's happened, where we're at, and where it's going? Uh, 
Well, first of all, I just want to give you my history. You know, I've been a member of the PGA Tour since 1977, all right? And I'm still a member of the PGA Tour. Do I agree with everything that they've done in the past? You know, I remember I was really vehemently against them, you know, um, beating up on Casey Martin. Uh, I was covering Casey Martin on the Corn Ferry Tour back back then. I don't know whether it's called the Nike Tour, the Buy.com, the Web.com, whatever. Yeah, whatever was there in the 90s. Uh, but, you know, Casey was a great kid, and I felt like the tour basically, they set their ground rules, and they made him out to be the bad guy. And I totally disagreed with that. And, you know, there have been some things going on in the past that I totally disagreed with. I disagreed with him trashing Greg Norman back in the 90s when he wanted to come out with the World Golf Championships and those kind of things. And not only did they trash him, but they started their own version of what Greg had in mind. Correct. Yep. And this is, the, this is the way the tour operates. And look, I'm, I'm a proud member of the PGA Tour. No, uh, when Jay says, well, you'll never have to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour, I said, well, what the hell would I have to apologize for? You know, I'm just trying to make an, a living uh, the best way I can, whether it's on, you know, I played in Australia. I played in Europe. I mean, the tour is not just America. I mean, I mean tours are not just owned by America and the USA. Tours are all over the world. You know, the Asian tour, the South African tour, uh, the European tour, uh, the, the ANZ tour, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so I knew at a young age, even though I was a kid from, you know, Napa, California, went to school at San Jose State, had been to many places. Golf allowed me to go these places and see how big golf was. Now, the tour has had this kind of, you know, I guess, attitude that I don't agree with. It's like my way or the highway. They don't ever work with anybody. You know, they just say, you do it this way, or, you know, it's like the FBI running things. In fact, we had an old FBI guy working for us. His name was Jack Tuthill. He was the best. We loved that guy. But it was, there was no bending. There was no, nothing but their way. Okay, so Greg Norman challenged him, and a lot of guys challenged him, and they got shot down. And the way they get shot down is basically from within. This is a tactic that the tour uses. They, they talk to their members, they get them in a room and they say, this is, you know, this Greg Norman, he's breaking us down. This is in 1994. He's going to, he's going to ruin, you know, he's doing this thing. This can't work. You know, we got to beat him up. Danny Edwards, the same way. Danny Edwards, all he wanted to do was look at the books one year on the PGA tour. The, the tour always said that you can always look at our books anytime. So Danny Edwards, being a pretty bright guy, he was a protege of uh, uh, Roger Penske, and Danny was a five-time winner, had a, a brother that won tournaments as well. Danny was a race car driver, kind of a renaissance guy, had his own companies. Um, and he says, you know, I'm going to take a look at this. And they shut him right down, okay? So I knew Danny, and I roomed with him, and, and we kind of discussed some things, and I said, you know, I don't know if this is right. I, I don't think this is right. So it's not that, you know, I think the tour is crooked or anything, but I just say, what do they have to hide? So when this whole thing happened, when this whole thing was happening, I think it was the PGL, Premier Golf League, and then the LIV. I didn't even know the difference between the two. And then I, I did have a, uh, a text uh, with, with Greg Norman who – Basically, I knew Greg Norman when he wasn't even Greg Norman. I knew him in Australia. I met him on the practice green at Bateman's Bay in a tournament uh, that was a $15,000 total purse. How about that? That's where I met Greg Norman. And, and so I'm thinking, you know, Greg is he's, he's pretty pretty astute guy. He, he knows what he's doing. And when I saw them vilifying him the first time and – and then taken off with his ideas, I said, you know, this, this, this is not good. This, you know, so I've, I've seen how the tour operates and I get it. They're trying to protect their own interests and they're trying to, you know, hide behind the charity thing. And that that's, that's fine too, but the tour doesn't directly give to the charity. They're basically a vehicle. Okay. They're a vehicle for the charitable dollars. They do other minor things, about all these three billion that you hear in charity, those are, that's not from the PGA Tour. 
you know, and, and that's, that's what they kind of get behind. So, you know, they're always in it for their angle. So they get guys in a room and I know a lot of the guys, you know, Peter Jacobson's a good friend of mine. I've known guys on the board, uh, Brad Faxon, you know, guys that have represented our interests. And I said, you know, why did we do this? Well, you know, they thought that we ought to do that. I said, they thought, or you thought. So basically the tour has come in with its recipe and its menu. And they said, you go by these rules and this, this is where, this is how we're, we're spinning this thing. So I think Greg Norman and I think Phil Mickelson, even at the end, and look, I'm not condoning what Phil's done in his life. I just do know that Phil Mickelson has, uh, you know, been exposed and uh, he's gotten his own mouth in the way. And, you know, whether the gambling's an issue or whatever, look, Phil is right. You know, and Greg Norman, they're right. The tour gets a piece of every player that's out there and doesn't really share it that much. Uh, somebody put out a thing. It was a reflection on major sports and what they give back to their players. And the golf was at the rock bottom. It was like 34 to 35% of all the take from the PGA Tour, 34 or 35% of it went back to the players and benefits and things like that. And the other sports are, are hovering anywhere between 48 and 52%. So that was a pretty telling thing to me. And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, as a guy who played for 18 years out there, the one thing, Jason, that I hated more than anything was missing a cut and going down the road, a three to $5,000 loser for the week. And I'm thinking if the tour is so big and so gracious and so charitable minded, why don't they take care of their own players? You know, I mean, at least give them something for missing the cut by the, by the way, the masters does the U S open does. They have plenty of no cut tournaments these days. Um, but the guys grinding from, you know, maybe 70th to 200th on the money list, they ain't rolling in dough anymore. So I started thinking, you know, this thing that Norman has is really what the game should be. Could you imagine being on a professional league and coming out losers for the year? And, and Pat Perez pretty much said it, and I'm sorry to be dominating this conversation, but I'm I'm on kind of a roll here. And if you got, you got to listen to Pat Perez's take on this. He says, look, I'm 46 years old. I've been grinding out here for 20 years. He said, I'm a, I'm a marginal player right now at best, but I have won four tournaments on the PGA tour. I'm, I'm a hundred and 124th ranked player in the world. Can you imagine me not even being able to play next year? Can you imagine me trying to grind out a living in my, in my late forties? He said, this shouldn't happen. He says, I'll play every event. There are guys that are warming the bench on the baseball fields, the football fields and the basketball courts that get paid more for sitting on the bench and not playing a down or a play or a minute. And I'm sitting here grinding, making the donut. Does that make sense? So, of course, I'm going to LIV. You know why? Because they've given me security. They've given me a place to play for four years. And I am set for life. So, to me, I'm saying, you know, Pat's no dummy. He was on, uh, I used to be on Sirius XM. And one of the best shows that they had was called Out of Bounds with Pat Perez and a guy named Michael Collins, the, the caddy that, uh, you know, he works for ESPN now. And I said, if that doesn't make sense to people, then... You can't be in it. You can't be, uh, you know, saying that. Oh, I don't respect golf because now they're all getting paid. Then that's that's the thing I get on Twitter is that. Well, I liked it the old way when you had to grind it out of the dirt and you had to do this. And you, I said, why is golf any different than these other sports? Why shouldn't guys be able to make money? Why should they be going home with zero money? Actually, minus five, five grand in the hole. And and so I just know that if the money is there, why not give it to them? Why not? The USGA thinks it's fine. The Masters thinks it's fine. Um, you know, people don't belittle the Masters for paying appearance money for guys to show up. They only give them like two or three grand. 
if they miss the cut, but still, um, it helps. So when they passed, when the PGA Tour passed this latest thing, which I totally disagree with, and I can't imagine the membership being behind it, was they brought the cut down from 70 to 65. And I think, oh, yeah, that's a great direction to go. Let's have more guys not get paid every week. So being one of those guys and being, you know, I was actually a pretty good money winner for all my 18 years out there on the tour. And I didn't have to worry that much about it. But I saw a lot of people in my situation or maybe a little worse in my situation. Man, I missed four cuts in a row, man. I'm I'm, I'm out 20 grand. Man, I feel awful for you, but. You know, I just I just can't believe a major sport that would carry that banner of, yeah, only our great players get paid, and the bottom of the line they don't make shit. <laughs> no, it's 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 strange, and I've gotten to be friendly with guys on pretty much every major tour. I won't use names or anything, but they tell me in private the same thing, right? Like this is crazy. Then, as you well know, hey, uh, the tour might ask you on Tuesday, can you go over and uh, maybe have dinner with this guy? He's a huge fan. Uh, can you help me with sure. this? Can you help me with that? And those guys, as you well know, usually do. So you're entertaining maybe on a Tuesday. You're either in probably in the Wednesday pro-am, maybe doing something Monday. You're selling tickets right. on Thursday and Friday because people are coming out to see you, the players I've talked to. You miss the cut and five grand's cheap. They're out 10 or 12 grand anymore. And how is yeah. that fair? And by the way, I, know, I own none of my media rights and I've entertained and brought in revenue for the tour for five days and I do stuff that you ask me to do that's good for the tour correct so what is wrong with this picture I'll tell you what's wrong with it somebody's keeping some extra dough and when they come up with 40 million in PIP money and I can just see the bottom 50 on the PGA Tour saying damn I'm never going to get any of that. It was great. Jim Herman, who's a three-time winner, I think, on the PGA Tour, um, happens to be a very close friend of Donald Trump's, which I guess they hate him now for that because, you know, the PGA Tour, they hate Trump with a passion. I mean, they, they'll they'll screw this guy over for any way they can. Um, you know, with the PGA moving from Bedminster and the Doral Tournament moving to Mexico, What? Are you kidding me? Because you don't like Donald Trump, right? So anyway, uh, this is a, that's a political statement, and it's not meant to dominate this conversation. But Jim Herman, pretty good guy, he was on Twitter saying, well, you guys, I'm waiting for my $8 million on top of the PIP. He says, I just know I'm going to get it because my social media is killing it. <laughs> and which was, a, you know, it yeah. was just a slam saying, why are they pissing their money away on something that, like that. And oh, by the way, we're not telling you who wins and we're not telling you where the money's going. So, um, you know, I just get very suspicious about it. Again, I'm a member of the PGA tour by association. I'm somewhat, you know, in that camp, but I am not outside the LIV camp. I'm not outside the DP camp. These, you know, basically the PGA Tour is a feeder tour, uh, you know, is, is being fed by all these other tours, South African Tour, the European Tour, the Aussie Tour, the Japanese Tour. These are all feeder tours to the, the PGA Tour. All right. So they've had their cake and they've eaten it, too. And somebody comes up with a challenge like LIV and the money that they bring. And, oh, by the way, they're coming to some markets that have been abandoned by the PGA Tour, like Miami, like the Pacific Northwest, where they've had two of their LIV events. Um, Chicago, and Trump which is Bedminster. crazy. It's not an event in Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Tell me about that. How does that work? I have no idea. The golf so, market so, here is huge. Huge. Exactly. And, and I, I used to live in Chicago in the, in the, you know, I lived there. I had some friends there. I love that place. And when they started moving the Western open around and the, you know, the BMW, whatever it is today, and they started going to, you know, Belle Reve and they started going to all like Wilmington. These are all great places, but you're kidding me. Chicago doesn't have a tour event. How did that ever happen? I have no idea. So, so, guys, 
and, and I'm speaking to you, your crew, and the people that are listening to us. When they start coming out with knives a-blaring against LIV, you damn well know that they feel it's a threat because they have not crossed the I's and uh, crossed the T's and dotted the I's. They, you know, there are cities out there that have been left, um, you know, in the couple that we just talked about for no doggone good reason except for whatever, who can pay the, mo- the most money. And they talk about, you know, the thing with Doral when they moved that. And look, Doral's been around since the 60s, right? Yeah. They had the Eastern Airlines open there forever. That, that was one of my favorite tournaments. And it goes all the way through the Cadillac Championship. It was the Doral Rider Open and then became a World Golf Championship event. And then, uh, you know, Donald Trump took it over like four years ahead of that. And they said, Donald, if you uh, put money into this golf course and really make it a nice resort, we'll stay here. Well, that's exactly what Donald Trump did. And then they came back to him and they said, look, you got to get your purse up. up, Otherwise, we're going to give the tournament to Mexico. And he says, Mexico, you're kidding me? And he says, look, I've put millions and millions. You know how Donald Trump's speaks. I put millions into this place. And now you guys are asking me to contribute to the person, do this and do that. He says, no, you guys can go to Mexico as far as I'm concerned. And then the PGA, they, you know, they had it at Bedminster. And then it got changed to Southern Hills uh, because everybody hated, you know, that whole association. So, look, if I'm, if I'm Doral, you know, I'm doing everything I can to host an event, and they are. They're hosting the final LIV event, which is kind of in the face of the PGA Tour. But here's another one for you, Jason. Um, Turnberry had fallen on hard times. You know, Turnberry is probably one of the neatest golf courses on the planet. And because the Trumpmeister took it over, they decided to take the um, – the Open Championship, they took Turnberry out of the rotation. So don't you know there's going to be an LIV event there? <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. So anyway, getting back to the Greg Norman thing and, and all this, it's like when I see this uh, this kind of uh, vilify the guys that leave, like Phil and like DJ and like Bryson, oh, he's weird anyway. Oh, Phil's done. Uh, well, what about the 30 years that he was with the PGA Tour? Is that just gone? Yes, it is. The tour wants him off the map. Uh, DJ, um, uh, a Hall of Famer, going to be Hall of Famer. He's got the credentials now for sure. They're going to just excommunicate him from the tour forever? I mean, is this a lifetime ban? I don't get it. What did they do wrong? Um, they just tried to, they're going where the money is like LeBron James did, you know, they're paying him 97 million for two years to play for the LA Lakers. Well, I guess he's just a traitor then because he left Cleveland, right? Well, you know, I guess Pat Perez is a traitor and Patrick Reed is a traitor. Captain America, I guess, uh, Taylor Gooch, who happens to be a, a, a man in Christ, a great guy and a wonderful player. They'll badmouth him. They'll badmouth Cameron Smith when he leaves. To me, that's not the way to do things. And so it makes me, do I apply for membership back on the PGA Tour again? I mean, because this is imbecile. This is is crazy. Jason, I don't know what you think about it. Um, You know, I hate to see the tour over here uh, harmed in any way. But I I think that, Jason, if, if, if you don't, make everybody happy and i'm not just talking about the top 20 guys then they're going to be looking to leave you don't you think yeah and and i'm probably biased because i know more of the players yeah and i like my friends that are tour players i'm friendly with so i understand for their families and and the rest of why they're doing what they're doing so right you know i can't really blame them for and as you well know, too, pro, you know, you're one wrist injury away from being done, right? You know, Luke Donald was <laughs> never the same player after that wrist surgery. He wasn't. You were on a knife's edge all the time without a guarantee. A knife's edge. Correct. No pun intended from a surgery. But 
I don't think, you know, well, that was a there's, good one. there's no guarantee you're going to be out there like you did for 20 years. There's just not. So and, and, those guys have to take advantage of that for their, and, you know, you can rip them all you want to, but when someone put out the reality, here's 20 million for four plus some, plus the prize money and it's guaranteed. And you look at your wife and your kids and if you didn't come from a ton of money, how, how do you not take that knowing you're one putting yip away or a wrist injury or a left knee and you're never the same player again. So I have a, 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 my lens is through the players who I've gotten to be friendly with. And that's where it's hard for me to put that aside because they're my friends out there and I want the best for my friends. And all you have to do is look at this year's FedEx cup. Who's on the outside looking in? You know, because they banned the LIV players, Ricky Fowler got in to the tour, you know, the, uh, the playoffs. Webb Simpson got in. I mean, these are, these are pretty good players, man, and they're sitting mm-hmm. on the outside. Uh, you know, Justin Rose is, is in good shape this year, but last year he was out, out of the playoffs. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying, look, this is real. You know, you just have a bad year. You have an injury. You run out of your and, and Hudson Swafford the same thing. He was down to his final two events. Okay, fine. And this is a good doggone player, Hudson Swafford. And he was down to his final two events, and he wins one. I think it was. It must have been the tournament in Bermuda, or I think it was. And so that allowed him another basically three-year pass. But I think, and then, and then Harris English had the same thing happen to him uh, a few years ago. He was outside the top 125, did not qualify back to get onto the PGA Tour. And this is a good player, man. A good, well, yeah, and, and if it can happen year, to him. It can happen to anybody, right? As talented as absolutely. Harris English is, you know, you're not talking, I mean, he's really good. And for him to have Absolutely. a bad year, it can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody. Absolutely. And it has. So unless you've been in the arena, it's really easy to take shots at people that are leaving for security. Oh, he'll never play. Hey, he doesn't give a shit. He'll just he'll never be as good as he could have been if he was playing for his life. Well, that's what we've always been playing for. <laughs> right. It's our life, unless you're Sergio, who had, who had a, a guaranteed lifetime contract, or Tiger, or one of those guys, you know, I that's, remember that's few and far took. between, though. That's few and far. Yeah, that's, I know. That's, that's you, you can use, you know, like you said, some people always use it as an example. But how many guys, you know, a year come out with that kind of guarantee? Two, three. Yeah. I mean, you got to be a very, stud in college good. and have all that. I mean, it's rare. Most of the guys, yeah. it's a grind up, and it's a bit of a knife's edge. It is. It's a grind up. That's the way it is. Um, so, yeah. So I look at LIV. Um, you know, they're going to be playing in some markets. Uh, they're going to be playing around the world. I do like the team concept. And, oh, coincidentally, um, the PGA Tour is now coming up with their LIV version of the PGA Tour. Have you heard that? the latest on that? Yeah. Yep. Now, now, does that does that make you? That's like this. Uh, I don't know the Inflation Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> you know, what about what's in this bill that's going to reduce inflation? Okay, so what what's on this new tour that's different from LIV? Sixty player fields, no cut, uh, uh, no big cut, purse. guaranteed big big money purses. Uh, yeah, um, great idea, Greg. Oh no! I'm sorry. This is this is the PGA Tour. So with that, Jason, I, you know the writing's on the wall to me. Um, I just uh, I'm having a hard time believing what I'm reading on Golf Post and some of these other things right there that are in the in the Golf Channel so slanted. And I used to be a member of Golf Channel for 18 years. I was a I was a broadcaster for them. When I see Brandel Chambly saying they ought to take the Hall of Fame away from Phil and and uh, Greg Norman shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, and I said, what the hell is this guy talking about? Why would he be doing something like that? I mean, that's just crazy. 
um, just because they are a threat to the status quo of what's going on, you know, and actually helping the players. And, oh, actually, I think growing the game. Because, Jason, look, I've been around this game forever, and it really has been getting boring. It has been getting boring. It needs some spice. It needs something. So I think the way that golf is played now, and you've been at Muni golf courses and you've been at uh, low-end country clubs and they're playing with boom boxes on. I'm not saying that's a way to play competitive golf, but, you know, they got that same thing going on at the Zurich Classic. That's a fun event. I think the Zurich Classic is a, a great idea. Uh, people have fun at that, and I think that's got, you know, LIV's got what that event has. Well, look at Phoenix, um, right? I mean, that's just a big party. How great is that event? Absolutely. So don't tell me it's not a duck. If it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Yeah. You know, and these guys, you know, I just like it the way it was the old way, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, I used to like it when 250 yards was a great drive. Now it's got to be 350 or you're yawning. Yeah, it, but it is changing, you know, and I would even say at some of the higher end private clubs, it's more relaxed music going, you know, that's even, yes. I mean, yes, there's, there's Chicago golf clubs in the world and they're great to go play. And I love, I'm fortunate enough to be able to go out there every blue moon and play it. And it's very traditional and it should be, but there's also a lot of newer clubs that are kind of bringing a little bit of the Phoenix open to the Correct. experience. And it's fun. It's really fun. The Phoenix open is a doggone awesome event. And, man, when you're on that 16th tee, hitting a shot. Now, when I played, uh, my last year was 94. I mean, it was just, you know, the stadium light. But we still had hundreds of thousands of fans a day, and they would, uh, you know, it wasn't like a horseshoe on the 16th green. But, man, when you got to 16, you better be able to man up and hit a shot. But it's fun, right? Like, how much fun is that to show off and little, you know, hit a little wedge or a little nine iron into the pin and have everyone, you know, applaud? You're like, that's got to be a blast for a touring pro. Show off a little bit like it, that. It really is. And, um, you know, different strokes for different folks. And some people, oh, I never did like that. And, you know, I know a lot of guys that, you know, never played the U.S. Open or didn't want to play the U.S. I, I, in the 18 years I played on the tour, I tried to qualify 10 times and I made it nine times. And the other eight times I said, man, I don't want to go there because I don't like that kind of golf. I didn't even try to play in Pebble beach ever in the U S open because I saw what they did to that place one time in a PGA. And I said, no, I don't think I want to go and see what they're going to do to Pebble beach this time. So I'm not even going to try to qualify. I mean, how, how lame is that? But, I mean, that's just what the, U the USGA did. They made it like goofy golf. Uh, Greg Norman, there seems to be a, like a big misconception. I know you've been friends with him a long time. And why is there this thing in, of, and this is, might just be the media saying this, that other pros don't like him or, you know, the media doesn't like him or the golf world doesn't like him. Is that, you think that's a, is that a made up thing? Um, about about Greg or you know how how did he be you know why is he the bad guy or what what is this or is it jealousy from players over the years just how the money and the talent and how he turned that into a business and like why is there this negative energy around Greg Norman I can't quite figure it out because Greg is confrontational and uh, you know and, and if you're wrong he'll tell you you're wrong and it's like. You know, with the Mark McCumber incident when he called him out for, you know, knuckling a spike mark. Well, all of a sudden, yeah, everyone knew that Mark McCumber did, did that. And, uh, you know, uh, and now Greg Norman calls him on it. And now all of a sudden, uh, Greg Norman is the bad guy. Uh, that happens all the time. Um, so, but Greg Norman, if you're doing something wrong, I mean, he will, he will tell you. I mean, he tried to get together with Fincham. He tried to get together with the in, because he has bigger ideas. Uh, Greg Norman isn't. He used to be a personal friend, and and you know, look, you can't have a personal friend that's worth billions of dollars and then you be worth zero. You know, like me, and you just run in different circles. 
and it just happens. Greg has plenty of big time friends, plenty. They just don't happen to be on the tour. All right. Not many of them, but, um, I mean, Jack Nicholas was his friend. I mean, Greg took after Jack Nicholas. That's how he learned how to play. His mother got him a book about Jack when he was 13 years old. And then Greg looked at that book like it was his Bible, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're competing against each other. So they had a great relationship and Greg's had some good relationships, but they like to just stone him because there is some jealousy there and they feel like there's a weakness because he didn't get it done at Augusta and he had to lead at all four majors one year and he only took home one and you know, he's gutless. He can't, he can't, he doesn't have the stones. And so people like to do that. It's like a rod, you know, that I would say that he's the tours, a rod, you know, no matter what a rod did, it still wasn't good enough. You know, I mean, so, and it's a lot like Tom Weisskopf. Tom, Wos- Tom Weisskopf didn't give a shit what anybody thought about him. Greg doesn't give a damn what anyone says about him. He just says, when I text him, I said, man, I think it's low, low, low what they said about this. And he says, no worries. He says, I can take it. He says, doesn't influence me in the least because I know where I'm going and I know where this thing is going. And I just say, wow, that's, that's, that's tough to take because some of those errors have to, have to set in, you know, and he's taken a lot of them, but you know, that's why, you know, when I went to this talk that he did, it was all about branding. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've been to a Greg Norman golf course and played any of his, I don't know if you've been into any of his restaurants. I don't know if you've drank any of his wine, had any of his Wagyu beef, uh, played off of his turf grass. Uh, I mean, really? You've got that much going? Uh, How can you say anything negative about a guy like that unless you're just damn jealous because he's gone out and done all this stuff? Uh, You know, I mean, I'm down in, uh, in Myrtle Beach. I said, Lisa, let's, my wife, I said, let's, let's go to his restaurant and check it out. Oh my God. One of the best meals I've ever had in my life. One of the best services I've ever had in my life. I said, oh yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd sure be, be beaten up on Greg Norman for this brand. Or as I'm wearing my shark shirt <laughs> or my shark pants. And I'm thinking there's got to be some jealousy in here. There really has to be. And, you know, the same thing with Tiger. There's got to be some jealousy with Tiger, too. You know, there are the, the fans that hate Tiger, and there are the fans that love Tiger. There are the fans that hate Phil, and the fans that love Phil. You're not going to change their minds, but there are plenty of Greg Norman fans out there. Yeah, he's a, he's a, I respect, you know, was it 92 wins around the tour, or around the world with all those different tours? You're not a choker. <laughs> you don't get 92 no. of them done. Golf is hard. No. This can happen. No. 92 wins. I'll just leave yeah, it at that. I, that's a that's a choke. Yeah, and yeah. and it really cracks me up. I thought this was juvenile too. Somebody won. I think maybe it was Justin Thomas or maybe Rory or something. They won their twenty first event. It was Rory. The, Rory. Yeah. It was Rory. Yeah. Well, I just want to know, want you to know how significant the twenty one was over the twenty. As we all know, uh, somebody. Uh, has only 20 wins, and that passed him up. And then I think Justin Thomas tweeted about it the next day. I said, are we still in high school, boys? And I I said, you know, Greg waited like six or seven years before even coming over here and playing. He played in Europe, got a shitload of wins over there before even teeing it up over here. (laughs) Look at his European tour wins. It's it's a lot, right? It is, isn't it? You know, when I saw him over here, I said, damn, Greg, what took you so long? Why why, why did you, because I met him in 76, 77, and I said, when is he, is he coming over here? And it wasn't until about 82, maybe 83 that he came over here. And he says, he said, Mark, he said, I had to get my stuff in order. I had to learn how to win before I came to the big leagues, and here I am. And boom, how many weeks in a row did he hold the 
uh, number one ranking? Three hundred and fifty. Three hundred and fifty. Yeah, something real close huh? to that. Yeah, it was something. Something. Yeah, could, I think you're right. Yeah, hundred and fifty weeks or whatever. no? I think it's like three hundred and thirty-eight weeks or three hundred and forty weeks at number one. There you go. There you go. So it's crazy. Yeah, it is. That's pretty good. So yeah, let's trash that guy. Yeah, he's an icon. I call him an icon, and people trash me for saying, "Hey, he's not an icon. He's a bum." You know, God Almighty, you have pretty high standards there, dude. Um, so anyway, we we you know, I just think that this this tour, um, our tour, the PGA tour, has some splaining to do, and now of course they're riding on the back of Tiger Woods, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens in this whole thing. Um, it's uh, stay tuned. What do we do then with? Just putting on like your tour player hat. How does the Corn Ferry Tour now fit into this with the PGA Tour? With the PGA Tour sort of doing a tour within the tour, if that happens for the elite, then how does the DP World Tour fit into it? Since there's the association is stronger than ever, or, or partial ownership or bigger ownership of the PGA Tour, what what of those tour becomes the, for lack of a better word, second best tour? I guess because the European Tour, DP World Tour, used to kind of compete against the PGA Tour for their elite players. So that's probably going to be off the table now. So how do you – are both of those tours going to be developmental tours now? And how does this all sync up? No clue. I I really don't. I I don't know. I I just think that, you know, there's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers. And I think some of the tournaments that have been, you know, kind of hanging on this fall series thing, that's going to go away. Um, I don't know. I think that there's more condensation going on rather than, um, you know, spreading your wings a little bit. I think they're bringing the wings in. So I think that Corn Ferry would probably be elevated, uh, definitely. And DP would be – look, the DP is just – they should, in my estimation, first of all, the tour and the LIV tour, PGA tour and LIV tour should have worked something out and they should have worked out a deal that both of them would have been pissed off about. Okay. And that's the way you work a deal. But I felt like this was an excellent shot for the DP world tour to elevate because if the PGA tour is saying no to Dustin Johnson and no to Taylor Gooch and no to Bryson DeChambeau, I felt like it was a great point time for maybe Europe to step in there and say, Hey guys, we'll welcome you here. Even if you're playing DP or even if you're playing LIV, I felt like Pelly made a huge miscalculation there. Cause now it's a, just a big old jumble. Um, and I don't know what this new plan is going to be about. And um, I do know this. I will tell you this, Jason, there have been plenty of guys that have tried to go the LIV and there's no room at the end. So uh, the managers and players have called and are not getting invited to play. So they are out of spots. I think they have all their stuff allocated after the playoffs. There are supposed to be seven significant players. And I want to say the significant, like, you know, Cam Smith, uh, Hideki, um, some other guys in, you know, not maybe that big, but I think Cam Smith is a, is a done deal. I think Hideki is fence sitting right now, but I think LIV has got, uh, some pretty big names in their last announcement will be, I think, um, after the playoffs. Well, my next question here, we got, we got to kick it back to the, uh, victory you had on the PGA tour, um, the, what? Uh, yeah, Why? at the Bank of Boston. Because you won. It's hard to win on the PGA Tour <laughs> at the it Bank is. of Boston yeah. Classic, right? You, you, you got to yeah. win, and it's like you. Yeah. It's hard to win out there. So looking back yeah. at that win, like what's your memories looking back at that now? Obviously, you're really proud. You're a PGA Tour winner. And, you know, what, what, what kind of comes to mind when you think about it now of that week and what it meant and holy shit, I'm a PGA Tour winner. Well, listen to this. Look, I finished about an hour ahead of everybody. I shot 64 the final day in a really windy, blustery day. The guys that were leading were John Mahaffey, Fuzzy Zeller, uh, Jim Thorpe, 
um, a lot of a lot of good players of that of that day. And I got onto the putting green. I I, I finished my round birdie birdie. Uh, actually, birdie par birdie birdie. And uh, I basically got onto the putting green. And this is when this is when you have to be a believer. Because I got on that putting green, and it was away from everything. They had a putting green in front of the clubhouse. It was a small putting green. And I was putting on that, and there was nobody out there. They were all watching the, the leaders come in. And I just looked up in the sky. I said, look, I know that this is too much to ask for a player like me. I said, I just know it's not going to happen because good things like a win don't happen to people like me. And, uh, you know, I just said, just suck it up, get ready for a playoff or whatever has to happen is going to happen. And so I heard this big cheer and I said, well, there it is. And as I'm walking back to the 18th green, they're all running for the gates. And I said, does does anybody know what happened? That yeah, some guy named Lie won it. <laughs> so the first thing I did was I went to um, Ted Mingola, who was my best buddy then. He was a tournament manager, and I said, Ted, bring me fifteen bottles of your best champagne. We're we're going to the press room, and he did that, and it was a time of my life. So that was in honor of Champagne Tony Lima who uh, won that press. tournament. Yeah, took care of the press with champagne, right? Yeah, he took care of the press, and he had actually won that tournament. I think it was called the Carling Invitational at that same golf course. You may remember that, uh, that name, Carling Invitational. And Tony Lima won it. And I said, well, I'll never be a Tony Lima, but at least I can buy drinks for the press like Tony Lima did. Yeah, classy. I love that. It's such a great nickname he had, too. Oh. Yeah, he was the best. Yeah, lost him too soon. Um, great memory. And, like, you know, I was thinking about your generation, too. Like, this is just my take. I miss the characters, right? Like, the Stads, the Payne Stewarts, Lanny, you know, I wrote down a couple names. Ray Peter Floyd's Jacob. golf Center, Jake, Maltby, you know, even Trevino was out there near you were out there. You thought Thorpey, Fuzzy, like, the swings all looked different. They all had their little sort of brand, and they were... You know, no one was going to mess with Jim Thorpe, and he'd gamble you for anything. And then, you know, Malpe might be in the lead, but he's going to have a couple cocktails on Friday night to let the pressure off. Like, it seemed like there was more identifiable characters. And it probably is the times, too, where you can't get outside that PGA Tour box anymore without, you know, having someone cancel you or get mad at you or whatever it is. I, I miss the days of Lanny getting all pissed off and that real fast-tempo golf swing. And you knew it was him from a mile away. I mean, you could just tell it was him, the way he walked, the look, smug look on his face at times. Like, I don't know. It just seemed like there was more more identifiable characters. Absolutely there were, and that's what made the game. Uh, yeah, it was uh, – those are some great times. And uh, now it's uh, it's much different. They have uh, – we don't hang around as much with each other. Um you know, and that's why I like working for TV and I like really like my radio job as well, because I hang, hung around with guys that were just like me, just wanted to have fun. But man, nowadays you have to <laughs> you have to grind, man, to just stay out there. Yeah, I think it's 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 a 24 seven type of thing now. Right. There was, there was no more, you know, like I said, Roger Maltby going to the bar. Or you know, some of the yeah. guys have the best stories from playing the European tour in the eighties. Like, yeah, every, no one went to the gym. Everybody went to the bar on Friday night. That's how you blew off steam. And even if Sam Torrance right. was too off the lead going into Saturday, yeah, he's not going to have a late night, but he's going to tell a few funny stories and have a couple cocktails and grab a nice dinner and go home. Yeah. Like they don't do it anymore. And it, you know, the golf probably is better played or whatever it is, and they're in better shape. But boy, I loved those characters from the. That era you played in, there was some great ones. On both sides of the ocean, right? Even think of the European tour guys. I mean, Woozy, oh, yeah. Torrance, right? Yeah. Jesper, Sevi. Like, those guys yeah. were characters. You know, like, you, yep, and you knew were. them from a Sandy Lyle's golf swing. Looked like Sandy Lyle's golf swing. He stood out like a sore thumb. Like, that's Sandy Lyle. Yeah. And then you had a guy, 5'4", Ian Woosnam, who was a world beater, too. Yeah. They had a great cast of characters. And it seems like we've lost that a little bit. 
of definitely yeah and then it was cool when i was a kid when the european guys would come over to play the pj tour because it wasn't that often then on tv you got to see sevy play or woosnam play or longer play i was like that's cool right because you didn't see them that much it was sort of like you knew they were great you'd read about them in golf world but see them on tv at the big events majors and stuff it was kind of cool like that that contingent would come over and there was sort of an aura about them playing on the pga tour then then they'd go back to europe and do their thing monty was kind of like that you know talk about yeah. character Right, I mean, love money, <laughs> right? So yeah, there was a, a reason why he stayed over there too. You know, it was all about the guarantee money that he was getting every week. That's why he never played over here. He got he got guaranteed big money to play every week over in Europe. Can't blame him. That's why. Yeah, can't blame yeah, him. I can't. Well, I got a couple more here, just kind of quick hitters for you, just your thoughts. So I'm sure you played some damn good golf courses, but best two or three golf courses from an architectural standpoint you've ever had the honor of playing? I would have to say that uh, Jack Nicklaus's course is by far um, the best design um, back in the day that he designed it, which was the 70s. Now it doesn't stand out as much because it's not as formidable a test because the par fives are all all reachable. But I think that one is right there. At, at Muirfield. Um, at Muirfield. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jack Nicklaus is, you know, that's 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 his his headliner right there. Yeah. Um, the other one I like is Cypress Point. I'm from California, and I haven't played it. You know, they used to play the AT&T there, and I love playing there. I love the course, even though I hated the 18th hole. I thought it was a lousy hole with trees in the middle. They had to hit over off the tee. And the 16th hole was just, you know, God-fearing. And, um, you know, that those those are my two favorites. And then I would have to say a close third is Augusta National. And, uh, yeah, that was that's my top three, my Mount Everest. <laughs> Best golf shot you ever hit under pressure? when you really needed it? Uh, it was about a 40-foot putt to make the cut at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock in 1986. That's a pretty good one. When you need yeah, guy, <laughs> no pressure, guy right? Told me on the, I was the very last group. The fog was coming in, and I said uh, I shot 80 the first round. And I said, so what's the cut? And he said, it's 150. I said, well, I'm at 151 if I par this hole. He says, you're out. He says, 150's in, 150's out. Nobody, I think one guy shot par the first round. It was Bob Tway. The rest of us were all in the high 70s and 80s. And uh, so I hit a drive and a three iron. This is 86 now. And I put it on the front part of the green. The flag was in the back. My two best buddies were up there, uh, David and Nancy Saunders, who I stay with in New York, used to. And... Uh, I could hardly see the hole and I hit the putt and it's going up there and the sucker disappeared. And my two friends just rolled on the ground, started laughing, said they got a weekend in Shinnecock now. <laughs> they didn't want to go home. <laughs> Perfect. So that was it. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, last question I have, and, and, I, and the part two of the question I mean with all respect to whatever player you're going to name, but the most talented player you ever saw as a commentator or as a player, maybe both, right? Because Tiger always comes to that mind, but even when you were playing. And then always find it fascinating, the least talented player who got the most out of their career. And I don't mean that as a as a dig to that player, right? But, man, they worked their ass off, and they got to four or five wins, and they really shouldn't even been out there. But, damn, they just dug it out of the ground and worked with what they got and had a hell of a career with not as much natural talent as everybody else out there. Okay, well, that, that reminds me of two guys, Corey Pavin and Brad Faxon, okay? Neither one of them could hit it a lick, and they're both great guys, great players. Love them both. Um, the guy with the most talent out there, I, I would have to say, after following Tiger, uh, I followed him 10 times in one year, and it's it's – the, the command that he and Steve Williams had over every golf shot, every every time they were trying to hit, uh, you know, these shots, they would talk about them and they'd go ahead and they'd hit them. But my my next guy who maybe wasn't, uh, you know, besides Tiger, obviously that's that's the one, right? But another guy that's underrated in all of that is Fuzzy Zeller. 
Fuzzy Zeller could hit him a golf ball. And uh, he had the high towering shots uh, and, uh, you know, a two-time major winner, a U.S. Open and a Masters. And overall, great guy. I think Fuzzy Zeller has been forgotten from the ball striking machines that, that we've had out there. When you watch Tiger up close, what years was that from that you were kind of following him? Was it the heyday of the 2000s or was it a little bit later? I think he won four or five tournaments that year. So okay, so uh, let was, me see. I followed him at the Buick Open. I uh, followed him at Muirfield. Uh, in a couple other places. May have been. That wasn't the Western Open. Uh, I, You know, this was back in the 90s. Okay. Uh, not, uh, actually in the 2000s. Early 2000s. So in his, his in his absolute prime. Was it the best? Yeah. Even as a professional like yourself, were you watching this and going, wow, like I, I, I've seen a lot, but it was just absolutely ridiculous good to see it up close. It was, it was, it was a, <laughs> a weird experience, you know, surreal. And, uh, look, I've seen a lot of players in my day, but man, he, he was, he hit the shot of the moment whenever he needed it. And that was pretty much it. And, and he had all of them from the little, little Every wedge to the on. towering drive, right? Like that's the crazy part of like how good it all was. Yeah. It was awesome. It's cool. You got to see it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, great conversation. And um, like I said, I know you're busy. And I appreciate your time. But thanks, Pro, for, for, for spending an hour with us. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Anytime, Jason. Thank you very much. Good luck.